Dear Father, this was such an exciting time in human history in the aftermath of your life and death and the wonderful things that happened with the, the spread of the good news. Help us to understand what really happened and uh, we pray that um, this great awakening where the entire world hears about you, that this will be repeated once again. Amen. Well, it's interesting when we talk about what happened after Jesus was resurrected, you know, you would think, well, all of that's going to be found at the end of the Gospels or the beginning of Acts. But when you look through in other places in the writings of Paul, uh, there are a few additional details, which I think are kind of interesting. One is here in 1 Corinthians 15. He was raised to life three days later, as written in the Scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to all 12 apostles. Do we have a record of Jesus personally appearing to Peter? But apparently he did. And then he appeared to more than 500 of his followers at once, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. And so many times, don't you wish you had a little more details? What did he tell those two men on the Emmaus Road when he went through the Old Testament with them? Uh, what about some of these meetings? And we just don't have it on record. And then in Acts, we read where for 40 days after his death, he appeared to them many times in ways that prove beyond doubt that he was alive. They saw him, and he talked with them about the kingdom of God. Now, what do you think he told them about the kingdom of God? We don't have a long record of uh, Jesus' speeches and the things that he said after he was resurrected, but when we went through Matthew, we went through the many references to the kingdom of God. And so I think we can assume, well, he was talking about the same thing. Remember just a few of those. He said the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, is the one who humbles himself and becomes like this child. And he also said the kingdom of God is within you. Don't look for it up in the sky. It's within you. It's among you. And this was so repetitive. So he told them about the kingdom of God. This would all be consistent with the things that he had told them before. And that's why I think it must have been rather discouraging for Jesus that as they go out and he's just about to be resurrected and the disciples now are going to say something to Jesus and after talking about the kingdom of God, they say, Lord, will you at this time give the kingdom back to Israel? And the contemporary English version translation of this verse is interesting. Lord, are you now going to give Israel its own king again? Don't you think this was kind of a letdown for Jesus? Kingdom is within you. It's a spiritual kingdom. I want you to change your heart and mind. And the disciples are, who are always, can I be first? Can I sit at your right hand? Um, are you now going to defeat the Romans? Are you going to establish a king? Is now is when it going to happen? And um, I just imagine Jesus must have just, I can't believe it. I'm just going back up and this is the question now that you ask me. But he's gracious about it. And he said to them, the times and occasions are set by my father's own authority, and it is not for you to know when they will be. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be filled with power, and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up to heaven as they watched him, and a cloud hid him from their sight. All right, so Jesus tells them, you know, they really didn't get it. You guys need the Holy Spirit. I'm going back up to heaven. Now, we talked last time about the Holy Spirit. And in the end of John, he went again and again, you need the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit's going to do. And so just very briefly, remember, I ask the Father, he'll give you another helper. He'll stay with you forever. He's the Spirit 
who reveals the truth about God. You need a little more of the truth about God. I have much more to tell you, but now it would be too much for you to bear. When, however, the Spirit comes, who reveals the truth about God, he will lead you into all the truth, all the truth about God. And the Helper will come, the Spirit, who reveals the truth about God, who comes from the Father. I will send him to you from the Father, and he will speak about me. And you too will speak about me. Now notice, when will they speak about Jesus? It's after they have received the Holy Spirit, after they have really understood the truth about God. And as we talked last time, what Jesus, in his last talk with them, just before he died, was, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And now let me tell you a great truth. The Father himself loves you. And so I imagine here that in this act of receiving the Holy Spirit, you know, they had all this time now to reflect, to talk about the life and death of Jesus, and they are finally coming into this understanding. Father himself loves us. Jesus is God. Jesus is just like God. Um, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All of these things, I think, in their discussion, led by the Holy Spirit, leading them into the truth about God, is what finally climaxed in Pentecost. And I like this verse in Romans about the Holy Spirit. God has poured out his love into our hearts by means of the Holy Spirit, who is God's gift to us. The Father himself loves you. This message sunk in. And uh, I don't know how to describe whatever it was that happened here, but these tongues of fire and coming down upon them in, in Pentecost, it's, it's fascinating to think about uh, what really happened here. Um, so similar, remember, to Isaiah, who had the burning coal that touched his lips, and then he was prepared to give a message. Uh, Jesus, of course, Holy Spirit comes down as like a dove, and then he goes out on his ministry. Uh, so they have this incredible experience. When the day of Pentecost came, all the believers were gathered together in one place. Suddenly there was a noise from the sky which sounded like a strong wind blowing, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then they saw what looked like tongues of fire which spread out and touched each person there. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to talk in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. But remember, this speaking in tongues here, in this account in Acts, it was a speaking in tongues that everyone understood, right? Everyone understood it in their own language. It was for clarification. It was so that the message could be spread. When we get to 1 Corinthians, we'll talk about speaking in tongues a little bit more. But here in Acts, it is clearly not something that no one understood. It was something that everyone understood. Remember, all the people from many different countries came together and wondered how in the world is it that we're hearing this all in our own language. So we read on in Acts 2, after this description, Peter gives his speech. They all understand it. And many of them believed his message and were baptized. About 300 people were added to the group that day. And they spent their time in learning from the apostles, taking part in the fellowship, and sharing in the fellowship meals and prayers. And I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about what really happened here. Because um, in human history, it's pretty bleak. Really, this was one time, a very short time, where it really seemed like God's people had it together and they were getting the true message out. Um, how many other times can you think of when it really happened in this way? And we read just about the group of people here. All believed, all who believed were together 
held everything in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And in this kind of environment, the results were just incredible. The Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. So finally, God's people were living it out. They were actually doing what Jesus had commanded them to do, which was love one another. Give, give, give. Don't try to be first. It sounds like they were finally living the life of service and doing for others. Okay, on an, in Acts uh, chapter 4, Peter and John were still speaking to the people when some priests, the officer in charge of the temple guards, and some Sadducees arrived. They were annoyed because the two apostles were teaching the people that Jesus had risen from death. And if you just put him to death, you would be kind of annoyed if that was the message you know, that was being preached, uh, which proved that the dead will rise to life. Remember, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. This was always a big, uh, big deal for them. So they arrested them and put them in jail. And we get this description of uh, uh, contention between the Sadducees and Peter and John. But after they talk a little bit, notice the description here. The members of the council were amazed to see how bold Peter and John were and to learn that they were ordinary men of no education. They realized then that they had been companions of Jesus. They were really changed people at this point. Okay, remember how easily they just fled away from Jesus in Gethsemane. Peter, you know, denied him three times. And now they really are uh, fearless and uh, changed people. And they are acting, they're behaving like Jesus. So they left, then they came back again. So they called them back in and told them under no condition were they to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And they kept letting them go and they go out and preach and they'd tell them, no, you can't do that. And then they'd have to round them up again. But Peter and John answered them, you yourselves judge which is right in God's sight to obey you or to obey God. For we cannot stop speaking of what we ourselves have seen and heard. They're not going to stop. And they're not afraid of imprisonment or whatever they're being threatened with. And people gather together. They have prayer. And all these spectacular things happen here early in the book of Acts. When they finished praying, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to proclaim God's message with boldness. The group of believers was one in mind and heart. None of them said that any of their belongings were their own, but they all shared with one another everything they had with great power. The apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God poured rich blessings on them all. There was no one in the group who was in need. Those who owned fields or houses would sell them, bring the money received from the sale, and turn it over to the apostles. And the money was distributed according to the needs of the people. And we even have one specific example here. Joseph was one of the followers who had sold a piece of property and brought the money to the apostles. He was a Levite from Cyprus. And the apostles here were so impressed with this act that they called him Barnabas, which means one who encourages others. Okay, so all these wonderful things are going on. And, uh, you know, it's enjoyable reading through the book of Acts. And then we come to Ananias and Sapphira. And it's like so many times often in, in the Old Testament, you remember we went through, for example, like Elijah at the mouth of the cave and uh, the wonderful meaning of the still small voice. And then the next chapter, 
she-bears are chasing youths around. You know, so many times in the Bible where it's wonderful, we're getting a clear picture of God, and then something like this happens with Ananias and Sapphira. So I want to read the story, and I want you to think about Jesus, God, perfect reflection of the character of God, and love others. And then we have two people dropping dead right here at this time after giving an offering. Okay, Why, How was God involved in this? So let's read the story. There was also a man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, but he claimed it was the full amount. His wife had agreed to this deception. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias, Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men wrapped him in a sheet and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of doing a thing like this, conspiring together to test the spirit of the Lord? Just outside that door are the young men who buried your husband, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young man came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and all the others who heard what had happened. Now, why do you think this kind of a thing was necessary? Well, let me ask it this way. Was it the enormity of the sin? If sin reaches a certain threshold of sinfulness and it gets above a certain level, does God act in ways like this? Hitler, Manasseh, not so bad, but if you sell property and you don't give it all, now that's really going over the line. Um, so it wouldn't make sense that it was the degree of sinfulness. Um, well, do you think, uh, would this happen today? I mean, let's say that you sold something and uh, you went in and obviously they wanted to, you know, they saw what had just happened, right, with this man who sold his property and even gets another name, Barnabas. And uh, um, so they want to impress the disciples, it would appear. But if we went in and, you know, sold something and came into Randy Roberts' office and said, here you go, this is the total price, um, would that be replicated again today? Because people do these kinds of things all the time in different ways, don't they? So it would appear that what happened here was somehow related to the circumstance and what was happening at this time. Now, I don't know, do you, any of you have opinions? Why do you think, uh, why do you think they dropped dead after doing this deceptive act? You can see these troublesome stories are not just Old Testament, are they? We tend to think, yeah, there's the Old Testament, and then we get into the New Testament, and everything is clear sailing. Okay, but we still have some of these same issues. Any comments? Do you think God was happy that 
great fear gripped the entire church. God is love, and now all his people are in great fear. Yeah, Sarah, and then behind you. Uh-huh. Well, this ends here with... I, I put in the story about Joseph because I think it's actually important. People were selling their property, giving all, and then these people sold their property, claimed, here's the whole thing, and actually it wasn't. And we read the next verse here in Acts 5, and this is now in the, in the Message Bible. And uh, notice here, even though the people admired them a lot, talking about this group and the disciples, outsiders were wary about joining them. Why do you think they were wary about joining them? Um, on the other hand, those who put their trust in the master were added right and left, men and women both. Now, this, this incredible movement, I mean, Paul has not even, Saul has not even become Paul yet. This incredible movement, which would just rip throughout the entire world uh, about Jesus, about God, was just starting. And when you read through what actually happened, why didn't this last for a longer period of time? It very much was the influx and the dilution of pagan idolatry, other influences. And, um, and here now it is beginning very, on, very early on in the infancy of this church. And so, um, I mean, how reluctant must God have been to act in this way to be misunderstood? But yet it appeared that it was so important at this time that the church remained pure, that this atmosphere of what was going on, that it be preserved for as long as possible, and that it actually would go out. The good news would go out, and it wouldn't be killed off right at this uh, very early period of time. So God here, in such a dilemma here, to act, to be misunderstood, or to stand back and watch things go into chaos and to fall apart sooner than they would have otherwise. And so many times, it seems like, at the beginning of a very important movement, God has found it necessary to intervene uh, in a very decisive way so that things would carry on. I mean, think about the people crossing the Jordan, Jericho, and, of course, Achan steals a few things. I mean, not a big deal. Uh, but again, look how easily those people eventually fell off into idolatry. So God had to intervene in a very strong way to be misunderstood perhaps, but yet it was to try to preserve the group that was trying to go in and do it in the right way. Same thing with Uzzah touching the ark. It wasn't because what he did was so bad. God was trying to reach David with a very important message. This was a new movement. The ark is being brought in, um, set up in Jerusalem, and God had to do something very important to get a message to David. So again, I think reluctantly God had to do something to try to keep this group together and to try to keep those who were just impressed by the miracles out of this group. And read on later in Acts. Through the help of the Holy Spirit, it was strengthened and grew in numbers as it lived in reverence for the Lord. He wanted a group that was living together um, in that way. Well, we read on a few chapters later on in Acts and we come to the story of Saul who became Paul. And we've talked about this briefly before, but it's such an interesting story and I think so important for us. I want to talk about what really happened here when Saul became Paul. Did he just get a bright flash of light and then, okay, and he changed directions? What happened? Let's read the story first and we pick it up with Stephen. Because remember, Saul was there at the stoning of Stephen. And as the members of the council listened to Stephen and uh, this incredible speech, uh, all of uh, Acts chapter 7, that Stephen gave. 
They became furious and ground their teeth at him in anger. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw God's glory and Jesus standing at the right side of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right side of God. With a loud cry, the council members covered their ears with their hands. Then they all rushed at him at once, threw him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses left their cloaks in the care of a young man named Saul. They kept on stoning Stephen as he called out to the Lord, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not remember this sin against them. Very similar to Jesus dying on the cross. Father, forgive them. Same thing. Stephen here, he's not cursing the people. He is forgiving them as he dies. And so he said this and died. And Saul is right there watching the whole thing. Okay, but what happens? Next chapter in Acts, Saul approved of his murder. That very day, the church in Jerusalem began to suffer a cruel persecution. All the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the provinces of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men buried Stephen, mourning for him with loud cries, but Saul tried to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged out the believers, both men and women, and threw them into jail. This list we pointed out so many times. Notice that Saul was right down the line keeping the list. He was reading his Bible. In fact, he knew his Bible so well, as we understand later on. Went to church, paid his tithes, kept Sabbath, very careful about the law, and was doing obviously a lot of mission work, but his mission work happened to be persecuting the early Christians. But anyway, he was keeping this list that we would all agree. Um, well, it's, a, it's a pretty good list of external things to do. Okay, but notice, and he, this story is described twice of his conversion. I'm reading the second telling of it in the end of the book of Acts. And he describes, I myself thought that I should do everything I could against the cause of Jesus of Nazareth. That is what I did in Jerusalem. I received authority from the chief priests and put many of God's people in prison. And when they were sentenced to death, I also voted against them. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues and tried to make them deny their faith I was so furious with them that I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. It was for this purpose that I went to Damascus with authority and orders from the chief priests. It was on the road at midday, your majesty, that I saw a light much brighter than the sun coming from the sky and shining around me and the men traveling with me. All of us fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You were hurting yourself by hitting back like an ox kicking against its owner's stick. And I've tried to understand what does this mean? Uh, the Amplified Bible describes it this way. Why are you, you keep offering vain and perilous resistance? And I think the meaning is, um, Paul, you're really going against your conscience, aren't you? Why, why do you keep fighting back? Uh, he'd witnessed Stephen forgiving people as he died. He remembered the story about Jesus forgiving people as he died. He knew his Old Testament so well that he knew loving enemies, forgiving others. This is the ideal. He's probably looking at himself and seeing the way he is treating other people. And his conscience is really bothering him as he thinks about this. And so the word is, why, why are you fighting against this? And now listen very carefully to what happens next. He says, who are you, Lord? I asked. And the Lord answered, I in Jesus. I think that is the key thing. God, who are you? I am Jesus. And the only thing that really changed fundamentally in terms of the 
externals for Paul was that his picture of who God was changed. His picture of God went from being like this to now completely different. His picture of God now became Jesus. And that, that's, the, that's the fundamental single thing for each and every one of us, that our picture of God becomes Jesus. That dramatic change changed everything else for Paul. I am Jesus whom you persecute, but get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant. You are to tell others what you have seen of me today and what I will show you in the future. You are to open their eyes and turn them from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God. So again, we come back to the list again. His external list did not change. Now it's true, he read his Bible now in a completely different way because he read his Bible now, his Old Testament, understanding that that God of the Old Testament was Jesus. So he interpreted these stories in a different way. Um, but again, the, the external things changed. The list didn't change, but the way he did them changed because his picture of God was completely different. And um, what was his message after this? Well, here was his message. I once thought that all these things were so very important, all of the external things that we just listed. He thought those were all very important. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And how many times have we talked about the significance of this knowing? Eternal life is to know God. And it means a relationship, trusting. It's based on a true knowledge of his character. And Jesus became everything for Paul. I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I may have Christ and become one with him. That was the change that happened, and Saul became Paul. And notice what his message was. I don't place any value on my own life. I want to finish the race I'm running. I want to carry out the mission I received from the Lord Jesus. What was his singular mission? The mission of testifying to the good news of God's kindness, good news of God's graciousness. His entire message was to present God in this way. God is actually kind. God is like Jesus. That is the good news. And that's the message that he brought to the world. I'm now entrusting you to God and to his message that tells how kind he is. That message can help you grow and can give you the inheritance that is shared by all of God's people. Notice, that's the message that can help you grow. The message that is perhaps a different picture of the kind of person God is. Now, many uh, versions of this will say the good news of God's graciousness, and we maybe assume that that means God was gracious in forgiving us. But really, I think it is just the message that God is like this in character. God is gracious. God is kind. God is all of these things that we have described him. Good news is about God. And so he comes now to the world with this message, and this next story is just, it's like uh, in a movie. It's so uh, bizarre and spectacular. But in Lystra, there was a crippled man who'd been lame from birth and had never been able to walk. He sat there and listened to Paul's words. Paul saw that he believed and could be healed. So he looked straight at him and said in a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. The man jumped up and started walking around. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they started shouting in their own language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they gave Barnabas the name Zeus and Paul the name Hermes because he was the chief speaker 
um, just looks like an old black and white movie. And they lift these men up and they're gods and they're going to worship them. The priest of the god Zeus, whose temple followed, uh, stood just outside the town, brought bulls and flowers to the gate, for he and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifices to the apostles. When Barnabas and Paul heard what they were about to do, they tore their clothes and ran into the middle of the crowd shouting, Why are you doing this? We ourselves are only human beings like you. We are here to announce the good news. We know what that is. To turn you away from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven, earth, sea, and all that is in them. Even with these words, the apostles could hardly keep the crowd from offering a sacrifice to them. Now, this is very interesting here because they just witnessed this man crippled from birth. Now, all of a sudden, he's up jumping, running around, and they're so impressed they want to worship and offer sacrifices uh, to Paul. And this is Acts 14, verse 18. Next verse, verse 19. Some Jews came from Antioch. They won the crowds over to their side, stoned Paul, and dragged him out of the town, thinking that he was dead. Don't you find that remarkable? How many times in the Bible something just incredible happens and, okay, we change their mind and now they're stoning the one who just healed this man who was crippled from birth. And um, I just think this point is so important here. Miracles and numbers. God just led the people through the Red Sea, manna, uh, you know, miracles, miracles, miracles. And the Lord said to Moses, how much longer will these people reject me how much longer will they refuse to trust in me even though I've performed so many miracles among them? Were these spectacular signs and wonders? Yeah, it's impressive, but it's amazing how difficult it is for us to change the way we think and act if it isn't, if we don't want to change. Okay, forget the miracle. And again, I, I won't read this, but um, Elijah, this story, the prophets of Baal up there and he prays and fire comes down and the people kneel down the Lord is God. The Lord alone is God. And they're all on their knees because they just witnessed the big fire coming down, destroying the altar. And you read on. Yeah, they're right back worshiping idols again. Didn't change them one bit, except that for that moment, they fell down on their knees and they worshiped God. Wouldn't you think? I mean, wouldn't you know, we witnessed a big ball of fire coming down that that would change us? For the rest of our lives. But story after story after story in the Bible reveals great miracle, no change. End of Jesus' life. Even though he had performed all these miracles in their presence, they did not believe in him. And they left the tomb of Lazarus plotting on how to kill Jesus. We long for miracles, but it seems like that is really not the power that stimulates a real change of heart and uh, a real change in the way we think. So we contrast these people, witnessed a man healed, crippled from birth, um, but it, it didn't, they didn't want to change the way they thought about God. They are in this uh, pagan appeasement model. They're not willing to change that. Forget about the miracle. Now contrast this with the Bereans and the description here. As soon as night came, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived... They went to the synagogue. And notice here the description of these people. The people there were more open-minded than the people in Thessalonica. They listened to the message with great eagerness. And every day they studied the scriptures to see if what Paul said was really true. Now, I love the context here. They were open-minded. Okay, none of us have absolute truth. All right, We have to be open-minded to taking all of this in 
and they were excited about it. Okay, that great eagerness, and of course, they didn't just listen, but they read as well. They studied the scriptures to see if what they heard was really true. That's a great formula for um, trying to come closer to God, I think. And so this incredible time, I wish we had more time to go through stories and acts, but I like this verse here where Paul finally shows up in a place and his reputation preceded him. And uh, they describe him this way, the people who have been turning the whole world upside down have come here now. Okay, and that really was just remarkable. A handful of people that completely changed the world because they had the true message, they were really giving it in its power, and so many people came to see that this was actually true. It turned the whole world upside down. And if I could just in a minute go through the whole history here in, in a nutshell to describe how little success really it would seem that God has had in winning people to his side. Of course, we read the wonderful creation story. Adam and Eve believe Satan at the tree and then everything horrible happens from there. Cain kills his brother and we get down finally worse, worse and worse until we read that Noah was the last good man, the last man on earth who had a true knowledge of God. And so the flood then is not a destructive event. This was a rescue mission. Get the last person out that has a true knowledge of God. He preached for over 100 years. Anyone could get it on, on the boat. God preserved the last man so that he could have more time to try to reach the world with the truth about what he's like. But it doesn't get better. After the flood, the Tower of Babel. And we read on Abraham. Now finally things are looking good. But I don't know if any of you have read this verse in Joshua where Joshua describes about Abraham. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, long ago your ancestors Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor lived on the other side of the Euphrates River and served other gods. Who served other gods? Abraham and his family served other gods. Just down, 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 worse, 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 the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and even Abraham and his family are serving other gods. But God called him out and he said, okay, here's someone I can work with and we have the beginning of the uh, Jewish nation. But we read about his children and Isaac, Jacob, it's deception, deception, deception. Uh, the name Jacob, of course, means heel, deceiver. I mean, we could make a list of six or seven very deceptive things that Jacob did during his life. What about his uh, 12 sons? Of course, sold off uh, uh, Joseph into slavery. And remember the story where they tricked the men into getting circumcised and then they went into the village and slaughtered all of them on the third day after circumcision. And, uh, you know, we wonder how successful here is God being in human history? Egyptian bondage. Then finally Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, complaining and grumbling all the way at every stop. And they're not fit to enter the kingdom. They wander the wilderness for 40 years. And then uh, Joshua. And after they're in, at the end of Joshua's life, they're in Canaan. Notice his speech just at the end of his life. Now then, Joshua continued, honor the Lord and serve him sincerely and faithful. Get rid of the gods which your ancestors used to worship in Mesopotamia and Egypt and serve only the Lord. If you're not willing to serve him, decide today who you will serve the gods your ancestors worshipped in Mesopotamia or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. As for my family and me, we will serve the Lord. And the people replied, we would never leave the Lord to serve other gods. When Joshua had just said, get rid of the gods that you have. 
Again, how successful has God been in human history? Judges, a horrible book. The Levite and the concubine. I mean, the best God can do here at this time is to inspire a man like Samson with so much strength that he can kill lots of things and it gets some attention for God. But it's a, it's a horrible book where people are completely separated from God. And then the people want a king and God says, it's a bad idea. You don't want a king. No, we want a king. Okay, so he gives them a king. Of course, we know what happened with Saul. David, now there was a bright moment. Um, he was a man after God's heart. But of course, we know what happened with Bathsheba. He had Uriah killed. Again, we could make a long list of things that are also very troubling during the life of David. Solomon, okay, now there's maybe some good things are happening. And uh, Israel is seen to be a great light at this time, but he had many wives and eventually end up sacrificing his children to other gods. And everything fell apart. We've been through this chronology here. His son, Rehoboam, whose mother was an Ammonite. Um, and that resulted in the splitting of the kingdoms. Okay, so after Solomon, we have the 10 tribes to the north and Judah and Benjamin. And in just 200 years, from 931 to 722, the 10 tribes to the north are gone in Assyrian captivity worshiping other gods. And most of the kings of Judah weren't that good either. All right, but even after, now we have the rest of the kings here of Judah, Manasseh. You remember killed so many people, the streets were flowing with blood. No good kings left through here, uh, except Josiah. And now we have the Babylonian captivity. And they're all taken off into captivity. Okay, so the fall of Jerusalem. And then, of course, a small remnant comes back to Jerusalem but even we read in the book of Esther that most of the people didn't care enough to go back to Jerusalem. Most of them stayed behind. And then there's so much coaxing and coercing and Nehemiah comes along and has to rip beards out of people's, uh, rip hair out of people's beards to get them to obey, keep the Sabbath and so on. And finally, the Old Testament concludes with Malachi saying, or with God saying, you have said terrible things about me. And we wonder why God looks bad in the Old Testament. I mean, look at what he, the people that he's trying to reach through this time. Okay, so now we come finally to Jesus. Right now, here's a bright story, right? Here's some good news. But in many ways, this is the lowest point in human history because this was the point in human history when humans got together and said, you know what, let's even kill God in the flesh. So the cross, it's a great light on the one hand, but it's an incredible, almost the lowest point on the other hand, all right, so the point I'm trying to make here and just briefly reviewing all of human history up to this point is that it has been a disaster until this very brief period of time, Pentecost, where now people seem to get it. God's like Jesus, and the good news is going throughout the world. It shook the whole world, but unfortunately it fell apart, and we could spend a lot of time talking about that, and the Dark Ages are appropriately named the Dark Ages, okay, the truth really was practically extinguished for a very, very long period of time. All right, but, um, and we don't have time to go through all these verses, but I'm absolutely convinced that what we see here at Pentecost will be repeated. And that once again, before the second coming, this good news will go throughout the whole world once again. Many of you have grown up hearing about the third angel's message, that that is somehow uh, a big deal or something that is, uh, that is important. But just notice here, what is the third angel's message? Then I saw another angel 
angel is a messenger, a message, flying high in the air with an eternal message of good news, good news to announce to the peoples of the earth, to every race, tribe, language, and nation. And the third angel's message is repeated again in Revelation 18. Then I saw another angel descending from heaven, possessing great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his radiance and splendor. And this point could be rounded out with so many other verses, but the Bible strongly states that before the end, before the second coming, there will be another time when the good news will really go throughout the world once again. And um, I think that would be very exciting. I mean, if we're just looking at exciting times to live in human history, uh, I would think this time when the good news really goes out and it goes out with power in the whole world, here's the good news about what God is like, that that would be really the best time of all to live in human history. So I think the challenge for us is to do everything we can to try to help support and to promote um, this message. And much of it just, I think, involves us hurrying up to believe the truth ourselves. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, thank you for what we see in the book of Acts, that these fishermen and individuals of no great education or learning but yet they saw you, they finally understood what you were like, they internalized that, and then they had a great message about you. Um, although it went with miracles and other signs, it was ultimately the power of the message, which is the kind of person that you are, that you are a God of love. And we long to see that message also go throughout the world today. Help us to be vehicles and a mean for, means for you of reaching others with what you are like. Amen.